The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Well, I wanted to ask you to take your Bibles this morning, turn to John chapter 12, and we're going to look at this passage of, uh, of the coronation, if you will, of a new king. Uh, the coronation or, or the beginning of a new kind of kingdom as opposed to that one that had existed. You know, the coronation of kings in countries that have the monarchies, et cetera, they are always elaborate events that, that great expenses, no expenses withheld in order to coronate that new king. There's one that's in the history books that took place on December the 4th, 1977, in the capital city of the Central African Empire, now today the Central African uh, Republic. The world press witnessed the coronation of his Imperial Majesty Bokassa I. The price tag for that one event, designed and choreographed by French designer Olivier Bryce, was $25 million. At 10 a.m. that morning, the blare of trumpets and the roll of drums announced the approach of His Majesty. The procession began with eight of Bokassa's 29 official children parading down the royal carpet to their seats. They were followed by Jean Bokassa II, who was heir to the throne, dressed in white admiral's uniform with gold braid, and he was seated on a red pillow to the left of the throne. Catherine followed, the favorite of Bokassa's nine wives. She was wearing a $73,000 gown made by Lanvin of Paris, strewn with pearls that she had handpicked herself. The emperor had arrived in a gold eagle beckoned imperial coach drawn by six matched Anglo-Norman horses. He wore a 32-pound robe decorated with 785,000 strong pearls and gold embroidery. On his brow, he wore a crown of laurel wreaths like those worn by Roman consuls of old, a symbol of the favor of the gods. As the sacred march came to a conclusion, Bokassa seated himself in his $2.5 million eagle throne took off his gold laurel wreath, and Napoleon, just as he did 173 years before, he took his $2.5 million crown, which was topped with an 80-carat diamond, and placed it upon his son's head. The magnificence of the coronation of a king. The rest of the story is, is that Kingship didn't last very long because in two years he was overthrown in a coup. And so all of that was done for nothing. But I read that simply to bring out the contrast between the way we today coronate kings and we have all the pomp and and circumstance to look at the difference of the coronation of King Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem on a humble donkey. There's an extreme paradox here. There's there's a different, it's almost comical in the sense when you look at what we do as men to to enact even even presidents and the inaugural service and, and all the circumstances that surround an earthly kingdom. And in God's view, his kingdom 
is implemented in very contrast different ways. What a contrast. It was Passover in Jerusalem at this time in John chapter 12, and it would be a time when all of the Jews would come to Israel to, to celebrate Passover, and the event lasted the whole week, and, and of course, it culminated with what we're going to celebrate next Sunday, and that is Easter Sunday. We saw last week in John chapter 12 that just before this, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. He had been dead four days where his body had begun to decay. It wasn't that he had just lost his vital signs and Jesus raised him from the dead. But I hate to draw this word picture in your mind, but at that point after four days, his organs had begun to decay and it was far more than just somebody losing their pulse and hovering over their hospital bed and saying, I saw heaven. No, Lazarus had been dead four years and it was remarkable. It had never been seen before. And so there was a feast celebration that was thrown and that day to, to celebrate Lazarus being raised from the dead at the house of Simon the leper who had been one that Jesus had also healed. And John tells us in chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, that the next day the large crowd had come to the feast and they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So there was a large crowd there at Simon Leper's home, and, and word had spread. Bethany was only two miles or so outside of the city of Jerusalem, and, and there was a buzz this particular Passover feast because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and there was an expectation that he would be coming into Jerusalem. And so the crowds that had left Simon's home, the crowds that had assembled there at the gate expecting Jesus, there was an unusual buzz in the city. We had seen previous in the verses that Caiaphas, the high priest, and those other religious leaders had already made out their hit list for this Passover time. They were looking to kill Lazarus because Lazarus was a great witness for the prosecution, wasn't he? I mean, he had been raised from the dead, and if they could just kill Lazarus, then maybe this would squash his following of Jesus. And on that hit list as well was Jesus, where they had been planning for some three years to try to murder him, and Caiaphas had already advised the others, listen, better that one man would die for the people than for all of the people die, prophesying at that moment that he didn't realize that Jesus would die not only for the of Israel, but Jesus would die for all of humanities so that their sins might be forgiven and he would conquer sin by being raised from the dead where his blood had been shed on the cross and the wrath of a holy God was poured out in him. So all of this activity is buzzing around the city and, and now we see in this passage where the king is literally presented in Jerusalem, unlike the coronation of the king that I read about but King Jesus. So let's read all of these verses, 12 to 19, if you'll follow with me. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it had been written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and that he had done, that what they had done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has come after him. They're shouting Hosanna as he comes into the city and they're waving palm branches. If we've grown up in church, we we learned that on Palm Sunday that they, they cried out Hosanna, which the literal translation of that word might be to save. And so they were looking to Jesus, crying out, save, save us, Jesus. Some think that it may have been in the fashion where the British would say today, Lord, save the king as, as, as exalting the king. Either way, it doesn't matter. What they were doing is they were crying out and they were looking for one that would save them from the, from the horrendous rule of the Roman Empire who had oppressed them at that time. And what they were looking for was not the type of king that God was introducing. They were looking for a political king, one that might come in and solve all of the wells of the nation. Can I tell you, there is no political entity that will solve all the ailments of the world. It is only when Jesus Christ returns. Amen. You see, we are of another kingdom. We are citizens of another kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus introduces here. I am a citizen of the United States and I bleed red, white, and blue. But can I tell you, that flag did not save me. Can anybody say amen? The precious blood of Jesus shed on a cross is what saved me and he saved you. And so that's the kingdom the Bible tells us that we now belong to. And as, as they're quoting this, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's quote, uh, coat. They are quoting from Psalm 118. And it's the same psalm that would have been quoted about 160 years earlier during the revolt that was led by Judas Maccabeus where they drove out the Greeks from the land. There were two revolts that took place. And symbolic of that, they would, they would pronounce this Psalm 118 because again in that revolt it was it was looked at as a political answer to the problems of Israel but none of that was going to be solved by a political leader it had to be the king of kings and lord of lords that would solve the issues of that day and the greatest issue that you and I have is our sin condition and the greatest issue that this world has is that we are born into sin rebellious against God and all the mayhem that we see is a consequence and a result of the sin of mankind. And there's only one thing that can solve that, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. When we place our trust in him, and there's an immediate transformation that begins to take place in our life, and we are now saved and born again. That is the only thing that will set us free from the greatest oppression that there ever has been, and that is the oppressive nature of sin and the change in the bondage of sin. It is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that one can be set free from that. Amen? So they're shouting this. It's, 
It's, it's not coincidental that they were waving the palm branches. For you see, in that, in that Maccabean revolt during that time, it was the palm branch that became the symbol of nationalization, of a nationalized Rome, of a political system that would throw out the Greeks, not only the Greeks, but later would be a symbol to try to throw out the Romans. So now you know why they waved palm branches, because what they were looking for, again, was a political leader that would bring the nation of Israel to rise out of the depths of their oppression from the Roman Empire. You see, Jesus, as he entered in, the people expected at that time that Jesus was going to begin to to lead an uprising, to call for a taking up of arms, that the people of Israel would cry out and revolt against, against Rome and they would be set free. But can I tell you this? Jesus came and he did something very different than what they expected. Save us. Make us a great nation again. (laughs) Jesus said, it's not going to be done that way. For I am of a different kingdom. He had pronounced at the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1 that, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is a different kingdom than what we think of as kingdoms. It's not a nationalistic kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom that Jesus Christ is the head of all of that. 500 years earlier, as was read earlier, Zechariah 9 verse 9 would have, would have been recorded where it prophesied that, that Jesus, the Messiah, would come and he would be riding into the city on a humble donkey. Luke's parallel passage tells us that Jesus providentially gave knowledge to one of his disciples where there would be a colt that would be tied up and and they were to go and get that colt. And when Jesus did that, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. What Jesus was doing was announcing that he was the fulfillment of that prophecy that had been made, one of many prophecies that had been made prior. And this prophecy had been made 500 years earlier that he would come in, the Messiah would enter into a Jerusalem and a donkey riding on a goat and Jesus knew exactly that he was announcing that he was the Messiah. It's kind of interesting that it was a goat that was used or excuse me a donkey that was used. A donkey was used because a donkey was viewed as a royal animal but yet it was not like a a wild or strong horse. It didn't symbolize power but it symbolized humility And that's what Jesus was pronouncing to do. You see, the new king had come, but he was of a different kingdom. But nobody understood. As we read through the rest of this passage, 16 to 19, it says that they were were confused. Even the disciples didn't understand these things. But it wasn't until later after Jesus had been raised from the dead and he had ascended to the Father and the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost that they began to understand all that was taking place. John inserts an interesting thing here in verses 20 to 22. Look at it. Of those individuals that pursue this king, He says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were the Greeks. 
Now, this word Greeks, can, Greek can either be literally translated as Greek of an ethnicity of Greek, or it can simply mean Gentiles, whichever they were, I don't think is that important. But the fact is, what we're seeing here at the end of Jesus' life, where his, the beginning of his life, we see that there were Ethiopians, Gentiles that came from another nation, the, the three wise men that, that came to give gifts to Jesus. Now, at the end of his ministry, we're seeing him also pursued by those who would be Gentiles, not Jews, because they were God-fearing people. You see, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus came to the Jews. Jesus was the Messiah of the Jews, but they didn't understand that his kingdom would expand far beyond the Jewish kingdom, and thank God it does, because you and I are a part of that kingdom today as Gentiles, those who are not of the fold. Amen. And so we see as he comes in here riding on this donkey, there were these Greeks, verse 21. So these came to Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew said, uh, Andrew uh, went to Jesus and he told him, and Jesus answered. And we're going to look at his answer in just a minute. The, the, in, the, in the original language, when, when it says that they said, we wish to see Jesus, it's not just a one-time statement, but it's a, it's a continuous statement. So it's almost as if these two Greek guys are following Philip and they're saying, we want to see Jesus, we want to see Jesus, we want to see Jesus. You see, the Greeks were always looking for truth, right? The Greeks would philosophize over their last philosophy and stumble over that, but they were always in pursuit of truth. And I find it interesting that they're pursuing Jesus. Now, the answer, the response to Jesus must have been confusing, to say the least, in verse 23, when he says to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does he mean by that? Is, is, is Jesus now saying that the Son of Man is going to be glorified, that he's going to be exalted, that, that, that he's going to be raised up, that, that now this, this one who is going to overthrow Rome is now going to be identified and he's going to be raised up? But the following statement we see in his proclamation is very different than what they may have had in mind. For he says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, Jesus was saying that he would be inaugurated as a king, not through conquest, but he would be inaugurated as a king through death. It's a, it's a kingdom paradox, isn't it? And we find it all through Scripture, paradoxically, these, these things that are, that are spoken of of the kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, how very different it is from the earthly kingdom. When he uses this phrase, it, it's, it's required that a, that a seed of grain first 
fall to the earth and die before it can produce grain. Do you realize that agriculturists tell us that in a one single grain of wheat, there's a potential for at least a million replications of that one single grain of a grain that falls to the ground. And if it does not fall to the ground and if it does not die, then there will be no other wheat that will come. It will become extinct. And so what Jesus is beginning to say is, listen, I must die. Wait a minute. We're, we're ready to march you up to the steps. And you're saying that you're going to die? But it was necessary that he die because through his death, you and I now have opportunity to be a part of his kingdom through faith in Christ and through Christ alone. Jesus was telling them that he must die. You see, his rule would go far beyond other kings. His, his method of ruling would go far beyond other kings. You see, kings of that day and kings of this day, autocratic leaders, they, they, they tend to try to enforce, lead people through compulsion but Jesus' kingdom was going to be where he would lead his people through a change of heart, a heart for him in response to his love. If you're following Christ today, if you're a disciple of Jesus, can I encourage you not to follow him out of compulsion? You see, when we follow Jesus out of compulsion, what we're doing, we're no different than the unsaved, moralistic person that has a list of things and says, you know, as long as I do these things, then I'm okay. There's not a list that you have as a believer that says, as long as I do these things, are okay. Listen, Jesus desires that we follow him, that we respond to him with a heart that says, Jesus, you are king and you're Lord of my life and I love you and I'm responding to your love. That is the kind of king that I want to follow. I don't know about you. He goes on to say in verse 25 again, or excuse me, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain, grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears fruit. And then in verse 25, he shifts it not from him, but, but to those that are listening. And then he says, whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know what he's saying to you and I? You know what he's saying to his first listeners? We got to die. Flesh doesn't die very easy, does it? I don't know about you, but I, I've, I've crucified my flesh a million times over. And it's worse than a cat. Your cat lover, don't be offended by this comment. Can you imagine if cats had a million lives? Oh, my word. I've tried to crucify this flesh over and over and over and over and over to find that it just wants to live. And I've learned that daily I have got to crucify this flesh and die to myself. I've got to die to my own ambitions. I've got to die to my own desires. I've got to die to my own, die to my own plans. 
I've got to die to my own dreams in ministry, and, and you have to die to your own dreams in, in whatever vocational pursuit that you might have. As a church, we've got to die to the kind of church we want to have. We've got to die to the way that we want things. I have to die. And I have to surrender myself to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, you are the head of the church. Lord Jesus, you are the king of my life. What is it that you want for me in my life today? That's not easy. Because I like to hold on to stuff that's familiar. I like to hold on to my preferences. Can I tell you this? That my preferences are the best preferences of anybody. <laughs> Jesus is saying we got to die. We got to die. Now, does that mean that I have to disregard all of those things? Does that mean that maybe I don't have plans and goals? Does that mean that there are not other things that I, I desire to achieve? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But what it means is that has to come under subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. And if I surrender that to him, then he will bless that if that's his will, that I've got to turn from those, seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. You see, there's this spiritual paradox all through Scripture. And Jesus is bringing one of them here because their expectation was a nationalistic king. And he's, he's crushing what that expectation is and, and what the kingdom is that he's going to inaugurate. Some other paradoxes we find in Scripture that, that power is made perfect in weakness. You want power? You've got to become weak. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So if you want to be rich, you've got to become what? If you want to be first, then you've got to be what? If you want to rule or have authority, if you want to lead, then he says, first you must be what? Servant. If you want elevation or exaltation, he says, first, you've got to humble yourself. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. You see, the difference in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, the question is, which kingdom am I living in as I proclaim to be a disciple of Christ? So we have to learn to live by dying. If we're going to fulfill the mission that God has called every believer to, that we state as a mission of our church to win, to disciple, and to sin, it's going to take some for me to intentionally give up my preferences, my schedule, to intentionally share with others the good news of Christ so that they too can be born again. You see, if, if, if we don't just want to have it as a statement and we talk about discipleship 
It requires that I sacrifice. It requires that you sacrifice some of your time and some of your schedule so that you invest into others to make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. It doesn't come by osmosis. If we want to sin, it means that you and I have to be willing to go out, not necessarily across the world, but it means that we've got to go into the world, and we go into the world every day, though we're not of the world, we are in the world. And God has sent us every single day of our lives into the world as a part of his kingdom so that we might introduce others to him so that they can be a part of the same kingdom that we're a part of. As my good friend Glenn Dyer says, you just got your marching orders. I got to wrap this up. Let me ask some concluding questions. As I stated earlier, I've, I've, I've learned again and again that dying to myself is a requirement for spiritual vitality. You ever get the feeling that sometimes your life is stagnant? Do you ever get the sense and the feeling that sometimes your spiritual life is stagnant and, and the potential there that spiritually is, is just dying? It may be, it may be you need to lay your life down and die to some things. George Mueller incredibly influential man in the 19th century in England. He was an evangelist, and it is said that he took care of as many as and more than 10,000 orphans in the city of London. 10,000. Stories are reported where he would be out of food, and he'd be at the breakfast table that morning and praying and thanking God for the food and can you imagine the orphans around the table going don't tell George but there's no food here when at the door there'd be a knock God would provide someone asked George Mueller this question what has been the secret of your life George George thought for a moment and he responded this way. There was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller. I died to George Mueller's opinions. I died to his preferences. I died to his taste. I died to his will. I died to the world. I died to its appetites. And I died to the approval or blame even of brothers or friends. That, my friend, is the secret to George Mueller's life. I tell you, that's a secret to our life. We can exist for another 189 years. 
just go on Sunday after Sunday. We, we, can, we can fall into the trap of the American church and says it's all about me and it's all for me. You want that? Go to Burger King. We can die to ourselves. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm going to live to you. And today can be a deciding factor of that for you as an individual or us as a church. That's between you and the Holy Spirit and what he might be leading you in your life today. In a moment, we're going to... Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.